Hey there, faithful ThoughtBot podcast listener. We love podcasts and having the opportunity to share our experiences through such a personal medium, and we hope you enjoy listening as much as we like creating them. For the month of December only, you can show your support for ThoughtBot and our podcast with mugs, shirts, and a limited edition knit hat. This particular shirt and mug design have never before been available outside of our own teammates and customers, and they may never be again. For the production and shipping, we are proud to partner with Social Imprints, who provides career opportunities and a living wage to people who need a second chance. So help support your favorite podcasts, provide employment opportunities for at-risk populations, and get some nifty ThoughtBot swag. Head over to ThoughtBot.com podcasts to place your order and show your support. And hey, thanks. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm Ben, and I'm here today with my co-host and friend, Derek Reimer. Hey, Derek. Hey, Ben. Happy uh, Wednesday morning. Yeah, happy Wednesday to you. This is actually kind of the end of, well, sort of the end of my week, because we're doing an end-of-year uh, hack fest-a-thon mm-hmm. extravaganza. So once or twice a year, everybody kind of puts down the tools and gets together and says, all right, we have two days. Like, what kind of fun stuff can we build? Awesome. Yeah. Any cool things come out of that in the past? Uh, Formkeep actually came out of that. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. So so products have, have come out of that. I think, I'm not sure if that's true about Hound as well, but sometimes like legit things come out or like products come out of it and other internal tools that we still use sometimes happen there too. And then sometimes cool. it's, it's purely silly stuff, which I think mm-hmm. is where I'm leaning this year so far. Are you going to try any new, new exciting technology for this? I think so. Like, I, I think what I see myself doing is probably something in Elm or Haskell, mm-hmm. uh, something with a nice type system, because I've been really enjoying nice type systems lately. So mm-hmm. kind of like a toy project in, in one of those two is probably the top of my list as of right now. But the way we generally do it is on the morning of the first day, everyone sort of pitches project ideas, and then mm-hmm. uh, teams kind of form. So I may just hear something great and go, ah, that sounds better. I'm doing that. That's cool. Yeah. How much, uh, kind of along that vein, how much hobbyist developer work do you do these days? Do you do you still toy around in languages in your off hours? Um, yes, very, definitely. I don't do a lot of off hours programming. I used to do a lot of that when I was first like learning Ruby and trying to get like break into the industry. For example, I did a ton of it. But now I think we maybe have, have talked about this, but I do codecations usually once a year. Okay. Yeah. Have Have we talked about that, or do you know what that is? I think I've seen you mention it publicly, but I don't. I don't know if we specifically talked about it. Yeah, so it's basically a vacation, except you write code. Okay. So I started doing it with my friend Chris Hunt, and we go somewhere interesting, and we do a little bit of touristing and and fooling around, but also we set a goal of doing shipping some sort of project for ourselves, nice. and so I've used that to explore ClojureScript and also Elm most recently. So I I carve out time explicitly during my year to try out those things in a. Mm-hmm you know, sort of no pressure situation. Yeah. I feel like I, it, like the time is coming for me to maybe learn a new language, partially because I know that at some point drip may need, we may need to mix in some other language that's like really good at concurrency or really good at text processing or something like that, you know, to, to kind of optimize some of our really, really performance intensive things. And I'm always hesitant to bring in anything. One, because we don't tend to have, we tend to be Ruby-centric um, in terms of skill set on the developer team. And I don't really want to bring in a technology that no one is super familiar with. But I feel like the only way for me to get comfortable with potentially bringing in a new technology is just to play around with it uh, for like a little side project or something. 
which I haven't done in a while. I, like kind of like you, when I was learning Ruby, I did a ton of just hobbyist developer work. I even used to do some iOS stuff, mm-hmm. but lately it's been you know pretty focused on solving problems that are at hand and not really experimenting with new stuff. So, mm-hmm. so that might be coming down the pipe for me. Yeah, I think that's a good idea, especially because I think the worldview, my worldview around technology is that it's never done. Like we're never going to have written the best language or framework or tool or mm-hmm. answer to problems. And so if you don't keep paying attention, I think sort of by definition, you're going to miss out on the best stuff. It's not always, yeah. eventually, it's not always that the new stuff is better, but eventually it, it should be. Like, yeah. I don't believe in a world where like Ruby is the best language we ever make. And so maybe there already is a language that would be better for the things like I want to do than Ruby or it will be invented soon, or I will discover it soon. And right. so I kind of just need to make sure I'm always paying attention to that a little bit. Yeah, and something I've, I've come to realize about programming languages in general, it's like Ruby is optimized for developer happiness according to its creator, you mm-hmm. know, and, and so that's why so many of us really love using it, but it's clearly not the best tool for like high concurrency things, for example. For sure. Or if you need to make use of threading, and it's like you look at, alternative languages that are really good at that and they probably don't have a lot of the really nice features that make ruby good for programmer happiness but it's optimized for a different use case so maybe it's like centered all around high concurrency and there are trade-offs there's always trade-offs involved but um you know i feel like uh not every language can be optimized for every use case sometimes you have to step outside your language of comfort to kind of get those other benefits totally and and for what it's worth i don't have any direct exposure to this but people who I respect a lot at ThoughtBot who have done a lot of Rails are now using like Elixir as a default mm-hmm. web framework answer. Interesting. With the the position that it's basically a better Rails. It's mm. just, it's taken on some things that Rails didn't do quite so well. It does those better and it does the rest of the things faster or as well. Uh, and that's kind of like the, the default answer if uh, for sort of your average web app these days from people I trust. That one's high on my list to check out. Do you know, is Elixir, pardon my ignorance, is Elixir a framework or is it a language? Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, hold on. It's Phoenix, right? Phoenix. Okay. The, yeah. Phoenix, yeah, is, Phoenix the is the framework. Elixir, right? Elixir okay. is the language. That was, yeah, my mistake. <laughs> also my, my ignorance. <laughs> um, so yeah, Phoenix is the, the, the default answer these days. Cool. Yeah, I, I definitely want to check that out. One thing that I always discover when I'm when I'm looking at a different language or a different framework is that I'm kind of like a spoiled Rubyist. Like I'm so used to Bundler and just some of the, the tool chain that just works yep. after all these years of refinement. Right. And I always find like it's painful to step into a different language that's maybe like where Rails was five years ago. Yeah. So that's always my challenge. Yeah, totally a valid concern. Although I think the bar has been raised by Ruby. And yeah. so that new languages are kind of, or, or languages like Ruby that have a nice answer to these sort of things. And so it feels like that pressure gets exerted on new languages and tools mm-hmm. quite quickly. And so they just kind of have to get to that level before they reach wide adoption. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is that like Jose Valim is the one who created Elixir, came deeply steeped in the Ruby and Rails world. Right. And so I think those tools are of similar quality. Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely have to give Elixir uh, a look. Yeah. For sure. I'm curious to hear another person's opinion on it. Yeah. I believe it's been a bunch of Bike Shed episodes. That's another uh, ThoughtBot podcast. Yes. Yeah, they, they're on my podcast role from time to time. And I, I know they've they've gradually shifted more into Elixir land and, mm-hmm. and less into less out of, uh, in Ruby. So. Yep. And I'd say as a company, we're doing more and more projects in more and more languages. There was a period where I would say probably 
something percent of our consulting work was in Rails. Mm -hmm. And now it feels more like 60%, somewhere around there. Yeah, that's good to, to evolve over time, I think. Totally, totally. Yeah, so I wanted to, to dive into a little bit of uh, technical stuff for mm. a few minutes. All right. I know I gave a, a giant tease about two episodes ago about some new technology that we're using to, uh, to optimize some stuff in Drip. And I thought I might dive into that a little bit deeper this time. Great, let's do it. So just to kind of give like the recap of the problem that we're solving, this problem is basically centered around the subscriber segmenting functionality in Drip. So mm -hmm. people can build up a, a query, say, show me subscribers who are tagged with this and have received this email and are on this campaign, whatever. And so, you know, you can chain together a bunch of conditions and that creates a bunch of joins in the SQL query that we build uh, from all these conditions. Mm -hmm. And so the top 5% of Drip accounts will often find that queries take a long time. Sometimes they'll time out and we'll tell them like, hey, click this button and support will help you optimize the query. Hmm. And sometimes they just have to run it a few times like these pages used to just time out and we've gotten better at like gracefully handling timeouts and giving people as much guidance as we can. Mm -hmm. But usually it just comes down to like, you kind of have to run it a few times for the cache to warm up in the database. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, this is really only for really large accounts that have tens of thousands or hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of subscribers and lots of events and deliveries in their account. But as we get larger and larger accounts, we know that this is a problem that is going to need to be solved and we tr want to try to get out ahead of it. Mm -hmm. And so I touched on last time that like we were really looking at sharding the database to basically get our indexes smaller for any given large account um, so that these queries would run faster. But there's so many problems with that can come with sharding your database. So we were we were looking for alternative solutions. So ultimately what we arrived at was basically pre-computing segments in the background. So when someone requests a particular segment and we determine that it's too heavy to run in a normal request cycle, then we're going to start computing these things in the background. So we had assumed that this was not going to be a feasible solution for most of the life of Drip because as with a lot of things that you cache, when you cache things, you're usually willing to accept a little bit of out-of-dateness, right? Mm -hmm. So if someone wants to look at a segment, you know, if we cache it and say we cache it for an hour or even just a few minutes, it's very likely that segment has changed in the window of time that's passed. And if you're sending a broadcast to a particular segment, say you want to send something to all your customers, and if someone no longer belongs to that segment, you definitely would not want that email to go to that person. Mm -hmm. So we really couldn't tolerate any out-of-date data being Stillness. in these. Yeah, staleness, mm -hmm. right, in these pre-computed cached segments. Hmm. So... We had long assumed that this was not viable, but we revisited the idea, like, how can we possibly cache these things? And what we discovered, the first breakthrough we had was that we thought, okay, if we cache these, then what if we just attempted to keep the cached segment up to date in real time as changes happen to subscribers? So anytime a subscriber performs an event, receives an email, joins a campaign, whatever, we reevaluate to see, does this person belong in any segments that they're not in right now, or do they need to be removed from any of the segments that they're currently in? Mm -hmm. You know, we had assumed that this was going to be way too processor intensive, like subscriber changes happen all the time. Right. That had been our kind of our underlying assumption about that. But then we looked at our existing system and we're already doing a ton of work. Um, anytime an event happens, mm. we're already checking all the automation rules or evaluating workflows to see if someone needs to move on in a workflow. And so this is actually, compared to what we're already doing, it's actually 
a small amount of work in the grand scheme. Mm-hmm. So that led us to, okay, we're going to basically, we need to maintain a mapping of subscribers to their segments. Mm-hmm. So we started thinking through, all right, what technology do we want to use for this? And first thought was to use Postgres table, right? To just a basic join table mapping a, a segment to a subscriber. But then we started looking at the accounts that some of our largest accounts, the ones we're trying to solve this problem for. And many of them have a bunch of segments, thousands of subscribers. This would result in already millions of records being inserted into this join table. Mm -hmm. And if we need to count across this join table, well, now we're we're encountering the same counting problems we've had the whole time. Mm -hmm. So we started thinking, okay, what kind of alternative data stores can we use? We've been thinking about tooling around with the idea of like trying to use some kind of analytics database, something like Cassandra or something like Amazon Redshift for data warehousing, like, you know, so we started going through the list, thinking through what what can we do? What can we add to our tool chain? And then we discovered, you know, we do have one other alternative data store that's already in our tool chain. Uh, We already are familiar with deploying it. It's used by one of our most critical pieces of our code base, and that system's Redis. And so, you know, Sidekick, which we're heavy users of Sidekick for background processing, Mm -hmm. already relies on Redis to store its queues. So we know it already has the concept of sets and lists, right? right? So we started digging into it, and we found that, sure enough, the Redis set constructs are countable in O1 complexity. So mm-hmm. meaning that it, regardless of the size of the set, you can always get the count of the set instantly. Right. And that was a major breakthrough for us. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's that's the technology I was alluding to, is that we're going to start using a lot more Redis um, for doing things that involve you know, keeping track of who belongs in a segment. We can also use it for things like, you know, counting the number of people who have received a particular email. We can now just like insert that subscriber's ID into a set that corresponds to opens for a particular email, and then we can instantly get the count. Hmm. Is it mostly the count that kept you from keeping this in Postgres? So the count is one of the big ones. The other thing is the amount of data churn that could potentially happen. So someone could perform a bulk operation that results in 10,000 people getting inserted into this segment right away. And then they could choose to, oh, I no longer want this segment. I'm going to delete it. And now we no longer need that mapping. So you could end up with potentially a high volume of deletions and a high volume of insertions. Mm -hmm. And we found that Postgres is not necessarily the fastest at doing those things. Interesting. So Redis is better at that sort of operation. It keeps the count. So it it caches a count somewhere. And also it's fast at this addition and removal of people in sets. Right. Yeah. It's really fat. Like we clocked it at, I could insert 3 million members into a set in like three seconds. Hmm. And if I want to, if I no longer want that set hanging around, I can just delete the key and it drops in milliseconds. Nice. So yeah, that's pretty cool. So you've done some initial work on this already, right? Like, is anything deployed using it yet? Yeah. So we have a proof of concept in production. Um, I just got the minimum amount of code written to start getting these segments cached in real time. And I kind of talked about last time that, um, you know, this has mostly been an an additive feature. So we haven't, rather than going back and modifying our existing concept of a segment, we just kind of added a new type of segment to our back end. So now we can, we can log into you know, we can look in people's accounts and we can start creating these segments that mirror their existing saved segments in their account. Hmm. And we can start just watching them happen in the wild to make sure to spot if segments do start to fall out of date, which that's the biggest concern is making sure that these stay accurate. And so, yeah, we've already begun creating these these cache segments in the background and uh, 
and we're kind of watching them live. And so far, no, uh, no major problems have arisen. So it's looking good. Cool. Is this when you're like in your happy place, yeah. like get like working through a problem like this and, and figuring it out? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's good when I can get one of these to tackle every few months, mm-hmm. ideally, you know? Yep. So there's a there's a whole cascading effect of like this discovery with Redis, which has really been sitting in front of us the whole time. <laughs> yep. But yeah, like I talked about some of our analytics computations, we're going to start pushing more into Redis for that. And there's like, there's actually some really cool new features. I can't really talk about them at this point because I want to coordinate that with marketing. But I think early maybe Q1 of next year, there's going to be some really cool new features that result from our being able to do these uh, these cached segments. Nice. So. That's cool. I think this is a model or a mode that we've sort of seen in a number of our like clients that, that do deal with a ton of data end up using some cached type computations and things like that in Redis. Yeah. And then like you said, it's nice because often they're already using it. Right. It's, it's a tool you're already familiar with and it's extremely battle tested. I think we found it to be like very reliable and all that. So yep that's nice yeah so it's pretty exciting we've got now we have three redis clusters in our whole back end we have one for one dedicated for sidekick one for all of our ephemeral caching needs for our rails cache and, and now we have this new one where we're keeping a little bit more persistent data in there it's still for the most part that can be repopulated from our postgres database if it, you know in the event that we had some kind of data loss you know redis is not quite as reliable as a full acid compliant database where totally. it, you know maintains stuff in memory and then it, then it doesn't always flush to disk you kind of have to tune that based on how much disk io you have available and all that good stuff yeah and is that part of the i assume that's part of the trade off which is like you can get these faster things yeah. because it's not acid compliant totally yeah yeah that makes sense and you want to have you want to make sure you have enough memory to hold the entire data set mm-hmm. in ram which you know since we're just storing ids here we're not storing entire subscriber records we can stretch it a lot further Cool. Well, yeah. congrats on uh, figuring out a thorny problem. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure there'll be more updates to come uh, on that front. Yeah, I'd be interested in hearing more. Yeah. It's nice when we go a little technical. It doesn't happen as much in the podcast these yeah. days. So I'm into it. Yeah, I like to get a little geeky sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of not technical, I did some non-technical work this last week or so. Yesterday, finally finished and posted our job description for uh, head of marketing for the products. Very cool. Cool. which is feels great to get out there. I was very happy with the posting, and I uh, decided to show it to a few people that were in marketing because, like I said last time, it's I think it's easy to say things that identify you as an outsider, you know, like say silly things uh, that the people you're trying to attract sure. would find goofy. So I was like, okay, I'm not a marketer. I should have people look at this. And I did, uh, and the feedback was very positive, which was great. And then we posted it and I got more positive feedback. And so I thought I might just like talk a little bit about that job posting and how I went about it because I haven't actually gotten any candidates yet. So it remains to be seen if it will actually work to attract good people. But yeah. the people I've shown it to have said, I think you will get good people from this. This is You've done a good job of, of laying things out there. And so I just wanted to kind of quickly break down my thinking in it. So I start off with sort of a background mm-hmm. talking about ThoughtBot and what we're doing and talk about each of the products very briefly with a link to them. And then... Mm-hmm. I laid out the situation and the challenges. I guess I tend to be wordy. I like to explain things. And mm-hmm. my goal with this was to be very honest and open about what's good and what's bad about this job or like what's hard about this job. Mm-hmm. For instance, in the like the situation section, I said, we employ quite a few excellent designers and developers, so our products are technically sound and well-designed. However, few of us are great marketers, so the marketing funnels for each could use quite a bit of work. 
we're looking to hire a senior level person to raise our marketing bar dramatically, the sort of person that will ask, why the heck aren't we doing X yet? And then go off and implement it. So nice. I sort of immediately start copying to like, we're not that good at marketing. And, and say like, you know, the, the, the bar is low here, or that the fruit, the fruit is hanging on the low side of things. Yeah. And then so I go to then lay out the challenges. So I talk about uh, the fact that we're going to be a little bit budget constrained because, you know, we have a certain amount of revenue. And so there's going to be one marketing person and, you know, we, we can't spend a ton of money on ads. There are multiple products, which makes life a little harder because it's not just choosing what's the best marketing channel for a product. It's sort of figuring out where do we spend our time across the products. Our growth and churn are about equal in each of the products. So I talk about that. And also that we're selling into a market that is mostly developers. And so they would need to understand that kind of those people. Uh, and then I also lay out the opportunities. Uh, so ThoughtBot has some pretty excellent marketing assets. Uh, the blog, the Twitter account, the podcast, <laughs> this podcast, uh, the playbook, all have pretty solid audiences, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, we're pretty anti-bureaucracy. We want to change. We know we can do better, things like this. And so you can you can read the post for all the details. But the feedback I've been getting mostly is that people really appreciate the transparency. Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's tempting to, when you put up a job posting to think, how do we make this sound as good as possible? Like you're going to have the opportunity to, you know, do things that will impact thousands of people and we're changing the world and the whatever. And I intentionally left basically all of that out because everyone says that. Yeah. My BS meter has not been tripped at all by, <laughs> by reading this. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I'm trying to not make job bait, but, um, right. Honesty bait. Yeah. And my mindset was, what would I want to know? Uh, mm -hmm. If I were applying to this, like one of my tricks when applying somewhere is to try to have a friend at that company, because then you can say, okay, like mm -hmm. what's, what's the real deal? Because you often kind of get the sales pitch pretty strongly from the job posting, from the people you interview with. It's like, it's painted as like very rosy. And then I usually will want to get sure. the, the inside scoop. And so I was like, Let me, I'm just going to put the inside scoop in the job description. And that way mm -hmm. everyone that's applying will know just what's going on. Yeah, it feels very transparent. It feels easy to digest. Like I like how it's extremely skimmable. Like, and most things don't wrap beyond one line um, of the points you're making. Mm -hmm. So most job postings I've seen have multiple paragraphs of text. So you kind of get the wall of text. And yep. I feel like this is to the point. Uh, you're not trying to overwhelm people with rah rah <laughs> <laughs> uh, verbiage. You know, for sure. And it feels like. I think candidates who read this are going to believe that they really do have the opportunity to to have a positive impact and to kind of take the lead on something, mm -hmm. which I think is is going to attract the right kind of people. Good, yeah, yeah, and, and I, I even have an explicit bullet point in the opportunities section, which is our products have never had a full time marketer on them. Yep. So if you're good, you can probably come in and like have a pretty strong effect. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm hoping that will appeal to the kind of people that are confident in their abilities and are like, okay, like I know I can come in there and, and rock this. Yeah. I think back to when uh, Rob bought Hittail. And at that point in his career, he was basically on the hunt for a product that was already built out. So he didn't have to make all the initial development investment, but something that was basically unoptimized or ripe for optimization. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he had built up his skills, sharpened his skills on smaller products before and was looking to take the next stair step up. And so that's, that's exactly what he was looking at when he was prospecting for businesses was like, what's something that you can clearly spot ways to optimize it. And an experienced marker can probably look and they can read about what you've done and they can look at the existing products and they can start to generate ideas. And that's going to really wet their palate, I guess. So. Yeah. So I'm pleased with that. And hopefully lots of awesome people will apply. And if you're an awesome person or if you know awesome people, my one weakness, I think, um, is that my audience is not a lot of marketers. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
Uh, if you know marketers, if you could forward this on to them, that would be awesome. Yeah. If, if they're sure. great. So yeah, so that's live. That feels good to get done. I did some businessy stuff, making a forecast for the next at least quarter, and eventually I'm gonna soon I will extend it to the rest of the year, basically, mm-hmm. which is gonna be mostly guesswork. But you know, I guess a decent guess is better than no information at all. Sure. So uh, I'm gonna write up some forecasts and basically say like figure out hopefully when we can hire more people and what impact they will hopefully have. But it's it's been interesting. You mentioned Rob a couple seconds ago. I went back and started rereading Rob's book. Uh, mm-hmm. Start small, stay small, which he wrote a long time ago. Yeah, but it's like a nice little book on starting software products as a developer. And there was one line that really struck me as I was reading it, which was something along the lines of, "Stop thinking that you need to do all these things because you're an entrepreneur now. Don't put yourself in the process. Figure out how to build the process." Yeah, and that mindset is still shifting for me, but it feels like it's made a big shift. And mm. like I mentioned before, hiring Micah sort of really made that clearer to me. It was the first time where it was like, wow, I've like, that, that really is off my plate now. And that really changes the game for me. Mm-hmm. Um, like everything is better because of it now. My time, the customer support, quality and response time, like everything is basically better than it was. Yeah. And it wasn't something I needed to hold on to. And so now I'm, I think my theme of 2017 is basically going to be stepping back from putting my hands directly in things and mm-hmm. working on building the team. And I've kind of resisted that because I really love development and certain aspects of product management. And so I'm hoping that I can do enough of that to satisfy, like stay happy and, and, and energized. But I think my struggle will be to, I think the right thing to do for the businesses will be to do less of that over time. And yeah. like, I, I know Rob, like for instance, explicitly stepped away from doing any development and he you know, didn't want to at first, but he's, you, know, you guys chose Ruby, Ruby on Rails for Drip. He said one of the benefits of that was he didn't know it. And so right. he couldn't get involved right. in the code at all. Even if he wanted to. Even yep. if he wanted to. And so that sounds like a little too extreme for me. Like I, I don't know if I could be happy not writing any code. It's just like too good and too fun. And I've invested yeah. so much time learning how to do it well. So I don't think that's quite the right balance for me. But I do think that's just going to be increasingly the direction I'm moving in. So do you have any developers right now on the product team? I'm the only full-time developer on the product team. Okay. Okay. So you have like, as you're kind of forecasting out, do you have a sense for like a timeline of how you'll ramp down your development time and shift to someone else? Um, or is it going to kind of be fluid? I've just started thinking about that in the last couple of days. Um, yeah. Like I just had my one-on-one the other day and I was like, we were talking about like a couple of development tasks that needed to happen on the products. And I was like, we need a developer. Mm-hmm. And like, yes, I'm a developer and I could do these tasks, but I think that mentality and that approach has such a limited long-term viability. Yeah. Or to, it, it, it will limit us in, in a lot of ways to have me doing the technical work, I believe. Yeah, for sure. I, I never regret delegating. Even if it's going to take a little bit longer to give someone context about the problem that needs to be solved, like, mm-hmm. I've never once regretted it. Yeah. You know? I kind of have. I, I find delegation to be a bit of a, a, a very leaky abstraction. Mm-hmm. Even after delegating a thing, it tends to take more of my time than I expected or more of my involvement. But I think that's partly because I've been delegating at a granularity of the project level. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, hey, we need this thing done on Hound. Let me write up some guidelines for how we want this thing to work and then hand it off. And that works well in the sense that I'm not doing the bulk of the, okay, make this test pass and now figure out this technical error. And that's good, but it still tends to require 
a lot of like ramp up time and yeah. back and forth. And this isn't quite what I wanted, just like typical software development client relationship. And sure. I, I think some of that is because it's like we don't have a full time person that is has a lot of context yeah. and is kind of like can answer the questions for themselves and guess what I would say if they could talk to me. Yeah, it's it's most painful when you're having to do a lot of the thinking and the specs are detailed, you know, like I found when a developer is just getting ramped up and they're just new to the project, you know, my specs are like a whole page long mm -hmm. of like details of like, you'll probably, hey, you'll probably want to look in this place. You'll want to look at how we did it here and you might want to name your controller this and, you know, just to kind of like help guide that person into, you know, hopefully getting it right the first time. Mm -hmm. Whereas, uh, and gradually, those specs usually get smaller and smaller um, as the person kind of can, can do more of the thinking for themselves. Yeah, so. totally. So I, I think adding a developer to the team as well is probably going to be a kind of an important next step. Um, so that's something I need to sort of figure out and think about. But I think this mindset shift might be like the most important thing I've come up with in a little while. Yeah. And I think it's going to be a big theme for me over like the next year or two. Is like, how do I get good at this? And I'm, I'm glad this is like probably the best thing to do, but also like it's an interesting thing to do. It's, the, it's the, sort of the next phase for me, it feels like, like having gotten good at the technician sort of thing and now right. trying to get good at the team building leadership thing feels like, okay, I'm like kind of turning over the next rock to see like, okay, here's a brand new set of skills and I, I suck at most of them, but like, how do I get better over, over time? Yeah. It's going to be fun. I'm, yeah. It's I'm energized. Yeah. And I will, you know, be sharing the journey on here and awesome. blog posts and all that so nice yeah it feels good oh and by the way i mentioned my uh, email subscription rate last week was at three percent and now it's at six yeah. percent so wow awesome <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was like pretty psyched to three percent and you were like oh that's pretty good <laughs> in a way that said that's not very good and i was like oh no it's not very good but it went up over time so very nice now very up to nice. six and we'll, we'll see how much how much more i can increase that that's cool that's yeah good yeah it's good to talk to you as always you too, Ben. All right. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom, the Irish car bomb, Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes of this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 222. Thanks for listening. 